Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today my guest is Dr. Athena Ektipis. She is assistant professor in the psychology department at Arizona State University, also the co-director of the Human Generosity Project and director of Human and Social Evolution and also the co-founder of the Center for Evolution and Cancer at the University of California, San Francisco. She is basically a cooperation theorist, a theoretical evolutionary biologist, and cancer biologist who now works at the intersection of these fields. And she will be having a book coming out in the near future, which is called Evolution in the Flesh, Cancer and the Transformation of Life. So, Dr. Ectipis, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so I guess that we could say that you work uh, also with game theory, right? Certainly. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just because I've already had a couple of guests on the show that also do work on game theory, but I haven't yet asked anybody particularly about this, and for people to understand a bit better how game theory works. So, uh, in your case, I guess you apply it uh, from man, uh, to many things in life, that is, things at the smallest scales, that is cells, for example, and things at the upper scales, that is individual organisms interacting with each other in societies or groups. Uh, but in order for us to properly study uh, how things or people or animals interact using game theoretical approaches, we have to have uh, the setting uh, things properly set up from the start. That is, we have to know, for example, uh, what sorts of information they pay attention to and also the environment they're in, the kinds of uh, individuals they're interacting with, right? Yeah, so game theory applies to all kinds of entities. It can apply to cells interacting with each other in the human body, can apply to humans interacting with each other, and really the essence of game theory is that the outcomes, say for me, are not just based on what I do. They're also based on what you do. And so anytime you have um, outcomes that are not just a result of what the actor is doing, but also a result of what some other individual is doing, then you have the potential for strategic interactions and game theory, right? Because if what happens to me is both a function of what I do and you do, then I have some incentive potentially to change your behavior. And so any game theoretic situation um, can become a situation where the individuals have an incentive to change each other's behavior. And that leads to all sorts of interesting downstream effects and um, can lead to the evolution of uh, lots of different um, really interesting strategies for, for, for dealing with the fact that you, know, you don't necessarily have full control over the outcomes that happen to you. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's try to go through some examples of how things operate at the smallest levels and also at the biggest levels, let's say. But to start off with, I would like to ask you about a very interesting phenomenon that I read in some of your articles about that is maternal fetal conflict in the womb. Because, I mean, when people hear about this, uh, perhaps they will freak out a bit because, oh my God, are the interests uh, the interests of the mother and the child that disparate that they have to uh, have conflicts wh when the child is developing in the womb? So how, how does that work? Yeah, well, you know, the starting point for uh, pregnancy and internal gestation, the way that we as, you know, um, placental mammals have babies, it comes initially from the fact that there are a lot of aligned interests, right? The maternal body, she wants to transfer resources to the offspring. The offspring wants to get those resources. So it all sort of begins from a place of aligned interests. But um, the interests are not entirely aligned. They can be um, somewhat divergent. And um, the place in which they're often divergent is with regard to how much resources are transferred. And so from the perspective of the maternal optimum, she would prefer, you could, you know, I'm putting prefer in quotes because it means sort of evolutionarily prefer to allocate those resources equally among all of her offspring, present and future offspring. Um, from the perspective of the offspring, um, they are 100% related to themselves and only 50% related to their other siblings. And so the offspring itself would prefer to have a larger fraction of those resources. And so there's a, an imbalance or there's a, a mismatch between what the mother sort of wants to give in evolutionary terms and then what the fetus or the offspring would want, which is more than that. And so that, that mismatch there means that there's the possibility of a sort of tug of war over resources and um, we hypothesize that this might be one of the reasons why there are sort of puzzling um, and contradictory effects of um, fetal microchimerism on maternal health because in a lot of cases you have aligned interests so that you know both the fetus and the mother want the mother to survive and want the baby to survive right so you have aligned interests there but you also have this realm where you can have conflicting interests over the resource delivery. And so we think this might help explain why sometimes microchimerism has positive effects on maternal health and other times it has negative effects on maternal health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So I guess that we can say that Dr. House was not that correct when he stated in an episode that uh, a fetus is just a parasite or something like that. Yeah, it's not just a parasite it's partially a parasite but <laughs> <laughs> okay let's leave it at that before people start freaking out uh, about this so 
Okay, so uh, and at the level of societies, and particularly about human societies, uh, when it, we talk about how people interact with each other, we usually refer to things like kin selection, reciprocal altruism, and people keeping track. Uh, of how other people interact with them and if they return the favor or if they defect and things like that. And you and in your studies you also talk about a very interesting thing that you sort of pit against the tit-for-tat uh, tit strategy, that is the walk-away strategy. So uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well... Walk away is exactly what it sounds like. It's a strategy that leaves if its partner or its group is not cooperative enough. And um, I got really interested in um, in game theory and the prisoner's dilemma when I was in college, actually. And I um, was reading Axelrod's uh, The Evolution of Cooperation, and I, I was just like, ah, oh, I really, I really want to do this. I want to make a program. I want to see if it can, you know, how it can perform against tit for tat. Um, and as you'll probably remember, the in the evolution of cooperation, Axelrod talks about this round robin tournament where he had all these strategies and he had them play against each other. Um, but they were playing sort of in a very abstract world. There was no space. They were just getting randomly paired, and then they would have some number of interactions and then get repaired. And to me, it seemed like um, that was actually really uh, an unrealistic assumption to make, that you would have these sorts of random interactions, that the length of the interactions would be random, um, because in real life, you know, organisms move around in space, and they stay when things are good, and they leave when things aren't good. It's, you know, just basic foraging theory. I mean, it's even like pre-foraging theory. It's just stay if things are good, leave if things are bad. So I wanted to make a model that was very similar to what Axelrod had done, but would be spatial and um, where the agents would have the ability to stay on a spot or leave. So they weren't necessarily like choosing partners, although a side effect of their movement rules was, was that they basically were only staying with those partners who cooperated. And so I put um, cooperators and defectors, um, tit-for-tat agents, um, Pavlov agents, and then two types of walkaway agents in. Walkaway cooperators, so they always cooperate and they leave if their partner defects, and walkaway defectors, so they always defect and they leave if their partner defects. And what I found was that the walkaway cooperators did better almost across all of the parameter space. There were a, a few um, areas where sometimes the tit-for-tat did just as well or a tiny bit better, but most of the time um, the walkaway agents were really kind of creaming everybody else. And um, that's you know, ultimately because they were able to get the benefits of those repeated interactions with cooperators and their rule of leaving made it so that they wouldn't get repeatedly exploited by a defector. So they were able to be really successful and outperform tit for tat, and uh, and it's also worked for a, a, a model for groups. So where agents were playing a public goods game on a patch with a group, and if the um, the resources that they were getting back from the group dropped a lot below a certain threshold, then they would leave. And uh, in that group-wise model, the walkaway agents. Um, the cooperators did a lot better than the defectors as well. 
And that's it's kind of because, you know, the defectors in a group, they basically are kind of destroying the group because they're because they're defecting, they're lowering the payoffs for everyone, and that means that individuals leave sooner. So by virtue of being a defector, you're reducing the stability of the group that you're in and reducing the payoffs. And so it's a, a really interesting um, dynamic where the cooperation can be favored overall. Within every group, the level of cooperation is going down, right? And then the groups break up, and then you have a bunch of new groups forming, and then the most cooperative groups do best. And so it really is a, um, a group selection process um, happening because of this conditional movement. And uh, what, I'll just mention another thing about it that's kind of cool, which is that um, it's been thought that one of the reasons that you know group selection has been kind of uh, really poo-pooed as not a likely explanation for cooperation is that uh, the models that have been done before assume random movement. And if you assume random movement, there's this very, very narrow range of migration rates where it's possible to get cooperation favored. Um, but the fact is, movement isn't random. And in this simple walkaway model where individuals are leaving groups that are uncooperative and staying in groups that are cooperative, um, the movement is conditional on cooperation. And you can get selection favoring cooperation across the whole range of like emergent migration rates if those are actually conditional as opposed to just random. So it, it kind of changes the game on how we think about group selection also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting that at a certain point there you refer to the fact that if a certain individual decides to defect or to get outside the group is included in, uh, that forces that sort of forces the group to change its dynamics. So the fact that people walk away from one group into another group that, for example, is more cooperative uh, also has a positive effect on the original group, correct? Well, you know, it doesn't necessarily have a positive effect on the original group. What happens is it changes the dynamics in the population at large. So you have to imagine you've got like a, you know, say you have 500 individuals and then you've got, you know, a group over here, a group over there, a group over here, a group over there. Um, the groups that are most cooperative are going to last the longest. And the groups that have more defectors, they're going to break up and then, um, you know, very often the groups just totally disperse and you get a few groups kind of forming on the periphery. And then overall in the population, you can get selection favoring cooperators, um, but the groups themselves, they sort of always die. So, you know, it's a, it's a sort of churning process where cooperation can continue to be favored, but um, walkaway can't actually like enforce cooperation within a group or keep cooperation stable within a group. It can just do it in a meta population sort of where you have individuals regrouping dynamically. So it's a, it's a partial solution kind of, and it's one that requires a certain population structure for it to work. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, very interesting. And I would like also to ask you about, because you did these studies or a, a particular study in the Maasai about the system of Osotua that they have there. And you also have this very interesting TED presentation and I read the article associated with it. Uh, because uh, the system of Osotua that the Maasai have is basically helping people only when they are in need, right? So for example, when a particular subject has need of something and they can't resolve the issue by himself, they then goes to someone to ask for help and the person is only required to help if they can, correct? Yes, that's right. So Osotwa is this really important um, sort of cultural and um, almost quasi-religious value that the Maasai people of um, Africa have. They um, create these Osotwa relationships and um, the, the literal translation of Osotwa actually umbilical cord. So it's uh, it's basically, you know, metaphorically saying, uh, you know, we're going to help each other based on, you know, one being able to help and another being in need. And um, Osotwa is exa an example of need-based transfer rules. Um, in the Human Generosity Project, we've seen these across lots of societies, but really the work started with uh, the Maasai and their, the, their norm of Osotwa. And so, so what happens is uh, Osotwa, or the, the Maasai have herds of, of cattle and other livestock that they keep, and they rely on the livestock for um, milk and blood and meat um, so that they can survive. So their whole family's depending on this livestock. And sometimes something unfortunate will happen. You know, there'll be a, a drought or a disease or theft, and they might drop below the number of cows that they need in order to sustain their families. And if that happens, then they can ask an OSO 12 partner for help. And the OSO 12 partner will help um, if they have enough to help without going below what they themselves need to support their families. So it's a, a really different system from, uh, from a debt-based credit um, kind of system because they explicitly do not pay each other back. Now, they do have a mutual obligation to help each other in times of need, but there's no keeping of accounts. It's not like, you know, if I gave you 12 cows last year that you owe me 12 cows. In fact, the direction of transfer can be one way for many years in a row, and that's not any violation of the Osotwa system. It really is based on you have a relationship, and in that relationship you're helping based on who is in need. And, and that really helps to... Um, kind of act as a, a decentralized insurance system in a world where there are unexpected needs that, that can arise, like with the Maasai and with many other small-scale societies around the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, and do you think that the sort of need-based helping system that the Maasai have uh, is exclusively cultural or that it operates on the basis or of some innate mechanism and perhaps what i would like you what i would like to ask you also is if it is if you think that it's generalizable yeah i i think that uh, my my instinct about this is that 
need-based transfer systems um, kind of uh, co-opt the parental care system. And, you know, you see this even in the fact that the osotwa means umbilical cord, right? They're explicitly using a metaphor of a parent-offspring interaction. And, um, you know, I think very often parents operate on the rule, like, if your child is in need, you help them as long as you are able, right? And sometimes even if you're not able. Um, but, but that whole psychology of, you know, the reason that you help is because of need, right? As opposed to the reason that you help is because you think they're going to pay you back. I think that that psychology very likely evolved in the context of parental care and parenting. And um, that it, it may be that, you know, over the course of human evolution, that system started to um, get co-opted for, you know, maybe not just parent and offspring, but um, also for other relatives or maybe also for mates, right? Because you and your mate are trying to take care of the offspring together. And then um, maybe for members of the group that you're really interdependent with because if they did well, then you would also do well. And so I think it's, it's likely that this system, you know, kind of began for you know, parent, offspring, but then kind of increasingly um, came to be able to be generalized. And uh, I think culture is an important part of it, too, because, you know, depending on what the ecology is, what the kinds of threats and opportunities are, um, you might be more or less interdependent with some people and not others. And whether you, you know, are, whether there's a cultural system that says, oh, you know, you can make a partnership, an Osotra relationship with someone who is not related to you, who lives, you know, a hundred miles that way in a different environment where you'll have, you know, different fluctuations. I think in order to have something like that, you do need for it to be a shared cultural idea so that everyone knows what to expect. So I think that it's, it's you know, all of these things kind of, um, and that the, the further you get from the sort of parent-offspring relationship, um, the more cultural scaffolding you might need in order to make it work and make it be stable and make people really understand how to sort of employ that psychology in that context. Mm -hmm. Okay, so next I would like to talk with you about your work on cancer and because we'll, you will be having this very interesting, at least it seems to me, book coming out in the near future. So it is very important to include that in this conversation. But before we get into that, so we've been talking about uh, societies and in this case human societies and as we already talked about here when people think about game theory uh, they usually apply it to uh, humans or other animals or other organisms but when we go to the smallest level of uh, existence let's say that is the cellular level uh, what happens there? Are, are there any uh, set of underlying uh, mechanisms that occur throughout uh, all stages of existence, let's say from cells to human societies? Yeah, certainly. And you know, one example is you know, if you think about who we are as multicellular organisms, we're made of 30 trillion human cells, you know, we also have about 30 trillion non-human cells and then a bunch of other genetic material, viruses, et cetera, floating around. But 
first approximation, we can say, you know, we're 30 trillion human cells from our germ, germ line. Of course, also some microchimeric cells. But again, we'll, we'll stay simple. So, <laughs> so let's say we have, uh, you know, 30 trillion cells come from um, the single fertilized egg that started us. Um, and th these 30 trillion cells, you know, over the course of development and, um, you know, kind of getting us to our adult form, they have to cooperate and coordinate their behavior on a totally unprecedented scale. I mean, if you actually try to think about 30 trillion entities coordinating to do anything, I, it's just totally mind-blowing. But yet, every second, 30 trillion cells are making it possible for us to you know, have this conversation to see the things around us, to process a huge amount of information and um, do things that are kind of unbelievable, right? Um, so for me, a lot of it begins from kind of uh, revisiting that kind of awe and wonder at like, wow, we are, a, you know, crazy, you know, version of cooperation incarnate like it's it's amazing that we can do all these things and if we think about you know well what are the the problems that happen for cooperative systems right as they get larger and larger um, the problem of cheating becomes harder and harder to to solve because you have more individuals that could potentially be cheaters. Um, and the more things that are going on, the harder it can be to find those cheaters and, and get rid of them. And so somehow our bodies have all these mechanisms in place to make sure that you know during development and during you know our, uh, our adult lives that we are not overtaken by cellular cheating. And if we think about what kinds of cellular cooperation are necessary for multicellularity. You know, it includes inhibiting cell proliferation, um, making sure that cells that are, are damaged fix themselves or die, so you have some controlled cell death. You have um, systems for allocating resources so that all the tissues can get the resources they need. You have division of labor on a massive scale, you know, all these different cell types doing these different things. And you also have the creation and maintenance of the extracellular environment. So all the space between our cells, like there's stuff in there that our cells have made that help us to survive and help the cells do what they need to do. So it's this, you know, unbelievable um, sort of public goods game that, you know, every, like all of these cells are investing in. Um, but if any of those foundations of multicellular cooperation get messed up, right, if cells start proliferating too much or using resources too much or um, destroying the extracellular environment, then that cooperation that really makes us who we are can be threatened. And in fact, if we look at what the hallmarks are of cancer, they map right on to breakdowns in these foundations of multicellular cooperation. You know, you get too much cell proliferation, you get, um, you know, inappropriate cell survival, you get monopolizing resources, you get destruction of the extracellular environment, and you get cells doing jobs that are not the jobs they're supposed to do. You know, they express genes they're not supposed to express, um, and they, you know, sometimes you'll get cells that are um, sort of the wrong cell type in the wrong place because they're they're not 
you know, doing the jobs that they should do. So it really is, um, you know, it maps right onto the breakdown of multicellular cooperation. Mm -hmm. Okay, and because you refer to the fact that basically cancer cells exploit their environment and they take much more resources than the other cells than they should, let's say, even, even though there's no, no one here to, to take a moralistic judgment <laughs> of what their cells are doing, right? But anyway, they're exploiting their environment in their favor. So do you think that uh, if we further studied these mechanisms about how cells interact in multicellular organisms, that that could provide us with uh, better approaches to fighting cancer? Yeah, you know, the whole framework of thinking about cancer as a breakdown of multicellular cooperation, um, it leads to um, thinking very differently about cancer suppression mechanisms, so how cancer suppression mechanisms evolved and what they're doing. Because if you, if you kind of take this theoretically motivated approach from cooperation theory, evolutionary biology, you realize, well, in order to have a large organism that, you know, lives for a long time, um, be cancer-free or, you know, mostly cancer-free um, to reproduction and potentially beyond, you need mechanisms for detecting and suppressing cellular cheating. And those should have a really similar structure to the kinds of cheater detection and cheater suppression mechanisms that um, we've, you know, already discovered in more general cooperation theory to work. So things like, you know, mechanisms that reduce the fitness of the cheater. So, you know, punishment is one way to reduce the, the fitness of a cheater. And, um, you know, uh, eliminating the cheater from the population. That's another way to make it so that the, the cheaters won't prosper. Um, and, and all of these strategies that have been, you know, already looked at in um, you know game theory and cooperation theory more broadly apply to what cancer suppression mechanisms are actually doing. So cells or um, genes like um, TP53, uh, which produces the protein P53 that induces um, uh, DNA repair because it's uh, can get activated when there's DNA damage and if that repair doesn't work um, then the cell will commit cellular suicide so we could think about what a gene like TP53 is doing from this cheater detection perspective and that um, actually can help us to make sense of what otherwise is just a really kind of puzzling like well why does TP53 have all these inputs from all these different areas of the genetic network going into it. It's kind of hard to really understand what's going on without having that theoretically motivated position of, oh, it's a cheater detection problem that's getting solved. And then, then it makes more sense. Um, so it can help us understand you know, the evolution of cheater suppression, the genetic networks that underlie um, cancer suppression genes. And hopefully it will help us do a better job of cancer prevention and treatment if we understand what our natural cancer detection and suppression systems are really doing. 
yes, that's all very interesting. And another thing about uh, cancer cell biology, let's say, is that for example, if some if someone nowadays has uh, cancer that is in a advanced stage, let's say, the tools that we have right now at our disposal are, are mainly surgery, chemotherapy, or radiotherapy, right? But uh, isn't it also true that from an evolutionary perspective, uh, those tools, even with their benefits, also have some failures? Because if you can use, for example, chemotherapy or radiotherapy uh, to kill the cancer cells that don't resist those approaches, then you are artificially selecting for the ones that can, that then will proliferate, correct? Yeah, in fact, there's a really exciting new approach to therapy called adaptive therapy that is motivated by um, trying to solve exactly this problem, which is whenever you apply a chemotherapy, you select for cells that are resistant to that chemotherapy, as you said. And so what you end up with um, after treatment is a tumor that's made of cells that will not respond to the treatment that you just did. That's the, pro the problem of resistance. And that happens with every cancer drug. I mean, it happens with every drug in general. Eventually, resistance evolves. And so if we kind of accept, right, that that will happen, right, and, and instead of like hoping, well, maybe this time resistance won't evolve. If we say, okay, resistance will evolve, then we can think about, well, how should we treat in order to reduce the likelihood that resistant cells will come to dominate the population. So what adaptive therapy aims to do is instead of er trying to eradicate the whole tumor, it knocks it back a little bit so it's a little smaller and then it aims to keep it a stable size. So it only treats when the tumor is growing. And what this means is that the effectiveness of the drug is extended for much longer because you're not treating with such a high dose that only the resistant cells survive. And so in clinical trials with prostate cancer, this approach of adaptive therapy has been extremely successful and has um, kept patients from progressing uh, for much longer than would be expected um, with a typical treatment. So I think it's a really exciting new approach. Um, it's been done in animal models of um, ovarian cancer already and shown to be successful there. Um, we're starting a clinical trial here uh, with uh, using adaptive therapy, breast cancer, um, and I think it's a really great example of how you can use an evolutionary approach and an understanding of the fundamental evolutionary dynamics that will play out um, and then design a therapy that takes that into account ahead of time instead of, um, you know, every time you get resistance and you're like, oh, I got resistance again, and then you just start again with the same strategy. You know, it's, uh, it's a way of really anticipating the fact that evolution will occur and designing a treatment strategy that, that takes that into account. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Ektip is let's hope that the work you're doing and your colleagues as well pays off and in the future we have at our disposal better techniques to try to preventing and treating cancer. So we're running sh short of time here. Uh, do you, would you like to tell people where they can find and follow your work online? And by the way, do you already know when your book will be coming out? Um, my book will be coming out sometime next year. I don't yet have a publication date for it, um, but I will uh, post updates on um, Twitter. I have a Twitter account. Um, it's just Athena Actipus. I have a, a website for my lab. Um, it's actipuslab.org, and I also have a personal website, athenaactipus.org. So uh, I try to keep those relatively up to date with what I have going on. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Okay, great. Thank you so much for all. Thank you for taking the time. I will leave uh, um, links in the description box for all that you just said. And perhaps, I don't know, next year we could have another conversation then about your book specifically because it was really fun to everyone. That would be my pleasure. Thank you. Hi guys, thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.